Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I am here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily Jane. Hi. Look at you on sort of vacation, suntan and all. I did get a suntan. You know, you feel vaguely guilty uh, enjoying yourself in the year in which everything is misery all around you. But, you know, you have to grab your moment. It's There's nothing to be to feel guilty about. You're allowed to spend time with your family in a safe way, which you are doing. And you are also here with all of us in the middle of your time with your family in the sunshine, because how could you not be? What a week in American politics, American history. I have been riveted and, you know, heartened, I will say, as the, you know, Joe Biden comes out of the cocoon. Mm. You know, it's the uh, it's the moment we've been talking about. You know, he's been We've been talking for episode after episode. Oh, he's playing rope-a-dope. He's, he's staying underground. Where's Joe Biden? We knew he was going to emerge. It's been beautifully, carefully orchestrated and quite well done, I must say, given the mm-hmm. circumstances, right? Um, you know, tonight, as we record this, Joe Biden will be giving his nomination speech. That's right. We're speaking to you from the past. Speaking to you from the past. And given the way things are unfolding, you know, Steve Bannon in handcuffs, taken off a boat in Connecticut somewhere. I mean, anything you could sort happen. Of, you sort <laughs> of always knew that it was going to end this way, right? You saw from the second you saw him in the national stage, you you knew that this is where it was going to end. Can I, can I give you my analogy for how I've been feeling this week? And it's, it's very personal, but it's the only way I can think of of the feelings that I've been feeling this week. So when I met my fiance, I had this feeling where I was like, oh, this doesn't have to be hard. Like this can just be easy. This can just feel good all the time. You don't have to have the Michigas. You don't have to have the stomach flipping. Is he going to text me back? Is, am I going to see him again? The, you know, the fighting or the drama, like things can just be really nice and easy and feel good all the time. And that's how you know you're in a good relationship. And when you're in past relationships, like things can feel darker or more complicated or whatever it is. And all I've been feeling this week is like, oh, I'm in a good relationship with the DNC. Like I I don't have to have the doom and gloom. The immigrants are coming for you. Your jobs are over everything is dark and bleak and it's nighttime in America. Like things can just feel easy and good and happy. And that's what I've been feeling this week. And you don't have to uh, just live with the insane ex-boyfriend who texts in all caps. Exactly. And who's been dominating, trying to dominate your life. You know, I I will say uh, the moment for me this week that really struck me and 
gave me a sense of exactly what you're talking about was mm. when Jill Biden, Jill, J-I-L-L Biden, came out mm. and she was in her classroom and you're just, you had this, she connects so powerfully and mm. gives you such a sense of them being normal people that you could actually hang out with and not totally. be, you know, blinded and smothered by ego and a horrible taste, right? You could just connect with them. They seem like real American people. And she, I, I was, we talked about this earlier in, in the spring, I think, about what a, what a strong force she would be. And she really mm. came, uh, she really brought it. And of course, um, you know, and it's been all the big Democratic talking heads that we know. We saw Hillary Clinton. She was fine. Barack Obama was like a tour de force, right? Unbelievable. The way the terms that they're all using here are vote like your life depends on it because it does. That's the line mm. that I keep hearing repeated. And mm. that sense of urgency coupled with Joe Biden. Yes, you know him, but you know him. And yeah. how that's the positive aspect is his longevity, is his record, is his familiarity. I think that, I mean, I totally feel you on the Joe Biden thing. I feel particularly strongly on it because I'm from where she's from. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And so her accent sounds yeah. like my mom. Yeah. Like she, she, the way she speaks reminds me so much of my own mother. And my mom's blonde and she like works in schools. And so I really, I really feel her on a cellular level. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think you have to grow up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and have a blonde mother to to connect to her. I think she right. sort of c connects in that way to everybody. It's it's no coincidence or accident to me that the most effective speakers that I've seen so far in this convention have been women. Mm. And I, I think that A, women are great communicators. B, women are, are naturally, I think, uh, more emotionally connective than male speakers. But see, I think that's by design. I think that women are going to win this election. And mm -hmm. we saw that in 2018. We actually saw them uh, do that in a version in, in 2016. And I think if you are having women speaking to women, there's no more powerful connection, no more powerful tool. But I think that we would be remiss if we don't stop and talk about what we saw President Obama do on Wednesday night. I... I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Well, to your point, and we're going to we're going to get both these um, bullet points uh, addressed here. But I, to the female thing, I actually watched uh, Kamala Harris last night uh, with my two daughters, my two ten, ten year old mm. daughters, and she had that moment at the end. It was so powerful about, you know, let's imagine our daughters and our granddaughters and our children in the future looking back, asking what, you know, not what we experienced, but what did we do, right? Mm. This sense of emphatic purpose that we are at with this inflection point that we're at and, you know, the moral decision that we have and how powerful mm. that was. That was – and so – and I thought that Barack Obama really also, I mean, his whole entire speech was a little bit about that. Uh, and he almost like, you could hear him almost like sighing. He was like, okay, let's start from the top. Democracy. This is what it is. It was a real, the constitutional <laughs> law professor showed up. But wait, can I ask you what your young ladies thought 
as they watched that last night. Well, I'm here's so what curious. I can tell you: they they had previously been watching like you know YouTube cartoons, which is usually what they're doing. Or, but it, I feel the, that the thing that I knew the 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 reason I knew they were connecting and that she was connecting with them is they didn't say a word. Mm. Usually they interrupt or their attention span falters, but they were just like on the on the beat with Kamala Harris. They were listening and. I think they understood that this was a moment, you know, and, you know, te- mm. not every 10-year-old gets exactly what's going on at all time or they don't think it's the most important thing. You know, they hear their parents sort of uh, freaking out about politics on a daily basis. Sure. So, but but this seemed, you know, impactful. And, and also the other parts of the production, I must say, this, you know, the DNC's convention is incredibly beautifully designed and even the interstitial documentary parts are really great. They're the best parts. They're amazing. I'm obsessed with them. I am yeah. obsessed with them. I thought the one about Jill Biden and Joe Biden's their love story and their family story. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was made by the two women, unsurprisingly, who actually did the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary and right. it felt very much like that. I thought it was phenomenal and I thought that the intro to Kamala Harris's uh, speech last night was just um, it felt like such a moment and that you don't have to agree with Kamala Harris you don't have to want to vote for Joe Biden you don't have to be a Democrat to realize that this is a moment that our daughters and sons are watching mm-hmm. that right now it is an extremely big deal for a woman to be on the ticket right and it won't be like that hopefully Right. in in a short amount of time but but it is a big deal right now and I want us to all stop and mark that and it feels very emotional for me I feel like I feel the emotion of it being a big deal and the little bit of a sorrow for it having to be a big deal and I feel like this is progress and we're watching progress and if if Joe Biden does not feel progressive enough for you and for many he doesn't let him be the connective tissue between two incredibly progressive candidates. Joe Biden is undeniably the, the connective tissue between Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. And in modern political history, I can't think of two candidates who are making history more than, than those two people. And so if he, and, and in and of himself, he doesn't feel like this guy is enough of a step forward, he's the bridge between two giant leaps forward. And that that's not something that we should forget. So. So if we circle back to one of those giant leaps in Barack Obama, I want to hear what you thought of the speech last night. It was such a departure from what you usually hear from former presidents about a sitting president. It was such a moment in history. You don't hear them talking about sitting president. Like that is against all normal protocol. You don't even really hear presidents, former presidents, uttering the the names of sitting presidents it's against their their protocol but to have it done in such a surgical direct way last night i was just like yeah we are in a different toto we are New not territory. in kansas anymore yes. well and about three quarters of the way th- through you know he's basically just dismantling donald trump in this very like cold fury that's you know there's no mm. it's not like some kind of like hyper emotional, you know, you're not going to get that from Obama. It's this cold fury. You could see him just, uh, you know, containing it, but just the act of him containing and being cold about it made it even more, Mm 
um, sort of piercing. And then to have Donald Trump, you know, tweeting out to it, uh, his response in all caps, the immediate image that came to mind was a a little child with a bib at a high chair with a bowl of porridge and his little (laughs) banging his spoon. You know, I mean, that was the immediate because he didn't have anything. He just was, you know, there was no Trump didn't have anything to say back to him of equal Mm. power. And he seemed incredibly diminished in that moment. And Mm. it was, you know, gave it, it gave some heart and it heartened Democrats, I think, and straightened their spines. And, And similarly, Kamala Harris said something at the end of her speech. And I think her speech connected with Obama's in, in some way. But she said, um, we have to do, uh, w- you know, what we're about to do, go into this campaign with confidence, she said. Mm. And it made me realize this is like the moment when Democrats are finally getting their spine and feeling that confidence. You know, after months and months and months and years, last three and a half years of feeling incredible anxiety, you know, on the edge of their seat, is this going to end? How will it end? Is he going to get impeached? Will this news a cycle be the end of Trump. No, it won't. It just kept going on. And you could feel the, you know, the anxiety about Biden, whether he's the right candidate. Suddenly, I felt like she nailed it. Confidence. We have to go into this with confidence. What do you think is is giving people the confidence in a way that they haven't had over the, the early part of this cycle? Or is it, uh, is it more of a fake it till you make it kind of thing? I think it has to do with the fact that this is the week that they're finally coming out with their story. Mm. You know, it's about biography. You know, it's about connecting emotionally with biography. You mentioned, uh, you know, just the love story of Joe and Jill. It was like, you know, it was like a cross between eight is enough and the Brady Bunch. You know what I mean? Yes. It was like, and there was just this sense of, yeah, this is an American story we recognize, you know. Two people from different walks, you know, a a man with a broken family, this incredibly empathic woman who's incredibly brilliant and uh, also and is a doctor, is a, you know, she teaches your children. She could teach Mm. your children. You know, she Mm -hmm. has that connection and she's uh, understanding what it means right now for you to have kids going to school. I mean, just all of this emotion is like what has been under the surface with nobody to express it mm. for us or for those who are horrified by Trump. You know, you mm. we've been suffering, right? And finally, here are stories that we can pour our feelings into. Mm. I, I think that that's right. I think that for so long, Joe Biden has been probably by the design of his campaign, letting others define him for him and it was probably a riskier proposition to have him out talking for himself all this time but it felt like okay we have a narrative now like there's there's not all these disparate threads there's one there's one single thread I also thought uh, the the real image that I had in my head last night was that I would do like some I would do some bad things to have had a live feed of President Trump watching President Obama last night. Like, I just wanted to see what what that reaction was. And, and as I was thinking and feeling that, I thought to myself, President Obama is objectively the best orator of our time and one of the best orators in the history of this country. 
I th- think, think the speech last night was a master class. It was one of his finest, uh, and he has a very fine roster of speeches. Uh, and I, as I was watching it, I kept thinking, President Trump has hated President Obama for years. From the second he walked on the national stage, obviously Trump propagated the birther conspiracy long before he had really any political ambition of his own, certainly well before he had run for president. And I know it was connected to his earlier flirt with running for president. I, I don't think they're they're disconnected. But, you know, pr- President Trump has, has hated Obama so much. And I kept thinking, like, how could you hate? How could you hate Obama if not for political reasons? Because Trump doesn't believe in politics. It's not like he disagrees with Obama's stance on Israel or right. climate change or whatever. Like Trump has no political ideology, ideology or philosophy. So it wasn't a, a political distaste. It was a personal one. Right. And it's very hard to personally dislike President Obama. He's He's excellent at what he does. He seems very nice. He seems like a fun hang. And I only came up with two reasons for it. And maybe both are true. Maybe one is true. The first one is that he is so threatened by someone who is excellent at what they do, that that Trump can't handle someone else being thought of as great. He can only think of other people thinking of him as great. And the second one is that he is a fucking racist. And I, I think both of them probably Bingo. in some combination are true. And it just, I know that it seems beside the point and not the most important thing that I could take away from last night's speech. But I thought that the thinking about Trump watching Obama and feeling those things is such an important way to think about the psychology of our president. That if he's sitting there stewing in the White House watching Obama and his feelings are stemming from either of those two places, it just is such a sad way to live and, and someone who really is, is not fit to hold the highest office in the land. That's my psychological take for the day. This is Inside the Hive. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Hive. Let me pivot off that and, and 
actually, I think you're right. Now, let's remember there was that famous White House Correspondents' Dinner where mm. Obama joked, made a joke at Trump's expense. He glowered and he was like, you know, humiliated, right? And yes, out of that is born an animus that begins the his birther campaign against yes. Obama, right? Yes. And then he, you know, his entire animating force of his presidency if you can, there's no real rhyme or reason policy-wise to it, but he's been trying to dismantle Obama's legacy. And yes. the pressure on Obama last night uh, was partly the intensity of his speech was, you know, in the soap opera of, of it all, is that he wants to preserve his legacy as well. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of unbelievable— um, how much uh, of Obama's, you know, work was torn apart, including, mm. you know, parts of the healthcare um, uh, that that they established. But and it's amazing to, again, once again, how psychological and personal uh, the presidency has been over mm. the years. Remember, we had we had Bush one, and then he. Uh, got into a war that he didn't quite finish, so Bush too comes along and tries to finish Daddy's war, and there was that psychology, right? And then Obama seemed like he was going to be the reset button, and that was met with the the most insanely regressive, you know, caveman uh, visceral response. Joe, that I'm going to say it. This is why we need a female president. I because hear you, there's sister. none of this Michigas. There's just, just get it done. There's none of this male ego. Mm -hmm. When you take office, you just have a woman who wants to get things done. Someday we will learn this. We will see it in practice. Right. And I feel like we're, we could be one step closer, regardless of what happens in November, having another woman on a major party ticket is a step in the right direction. And hopefully one day soon, it will not be the thing. Can we just look ahead for a second? Please. Well, I guess it's it's behind for everybody to listen to this, but we are we're now in this weird, funny place where everyone is going to be listening to us and is going to say how wrong we were. But let's talk about uh, <laughs> what what Joe Biden has in store for him tonight. I said to you before we started recording, I almost wish wish the convention happened in reverse, where mm. it started with Joe Biden and then worked its way back to. Kamala Harris and President Obama and Michelle Obama like that that feels like the order of operations here but yeah. alas that is not what's happening what do we think we got from Uncle Joe well I think it's really interesting and a little um, maybe bizarre that right before Joe Biden comes Mike Bloomberg right mm. which must have been something that they you know shook hands on months ago who knows what kind of back uh you know backroom deal was cut this mike bloomberg got that level of uh you know well, he's such an engaging speecher oh, speaker dear. you know oh my god well that's you know and it speaks largely and it actually goes right to what we were just talking about this party the democratic party is a kind of um you know wildly varying cacophonous group, right? You've got AOC and the progressive left who are not quite, you know, uh, excited to support Joe Biden, but they're on board 
because they're in the party. And then you've got over here Republicans, John Kasich, and then you've got Mike Bloomberg, who is not, is he really a Democrat? Not really, you know, mm. in name only, or whatever that mm-hmm. acronym is. But so I think Joe Biden, uh, for all of his milk toastness, as people might think, and mm-hmm. his white manness, you know, is kind of, um, you know, what you get when you want to find somebody that can thread all these needles. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's perfect. It's certainly not perfect. I didn't think of him as the guy that I was hoping the Dems would nominate. But this week has opened me up to the idea that, oh, yeah, maybe he is the guy that not only can herd the cats in the Democratic Party, but maybe, you know, bring some of those whatever 12 percent who have are undecided over here, you know, into this tent of uh, change, you know, and maybe saving us from apocalypse. So, I have a crazy thought. Yes. I have a crazy thought. Joe Biden should be a one-term president and he should say that on his first day in office. And he should just push all the shit through the Democrats have wanted to push for years. People won't have to worry about getting him getting reelected He's not going to have to worry about his polling. He's not going to have to worry about anything because he's going to be very old at the end of four mm-hmm. years anyway. Yeah. He, this will be the the last capstone on his long career. And I just think that that's the way to do it. And he should just say, like, look, I know that I am 79 years old. I know that that may worry some of you. I know you guys are going to think I'm not progressive enough or Congress is divided. I'm going to do everything I can for the next four years to just be a baseline. And then the next generation can fight it out over the next four years. And you guys can pick a president that fits that moment. But right now, I'm just going to normalize things and get shit done. Right. That's my that's my crazy. Well, and I've you know, it's not crazy. And it it may turn out whether explicitly or implicitly to be what happens. And on the other side of it, this is exactly what the Trumpists and the Republicans are going to accuse him of, right, as being just a totally. uh, the Trojan horse to, you know, out of which will spring, uh, you know, the far left progressives. Uh, with but their- maybe maybe he doesn't have to do crazy stuff. Maybe he just like, I'm going to pass an infrastructure package, which, <laughs> by the way, President Trump should have done on day one. And that would have made him in a very different position instead of deciding to implement a Muslim ban a week into office. If he had just said, I'm going to spend that attention and put that towards our nation's infrastructure, I think our president would have had a much different last yeah. four years. But if he does something like infrastructure or healthcare or, or Gun control. These are things that the majority of our country want to see. And if you, I'm not saying get in there and immediately pass the Green New Deal, which I understand why people in this country don't support that. But if you pass things that have bipartisan support and just put your political muscle toward that without having to worry about what's going to happen in four years from now at the polls, then you can actually have a president who gets shit done. Well, that's. One of the things that uh, if Trump had actually done an infrastructure uh, plan, if he had actually done anything really of of significance in the positive yeah. ledger, this would be a much more difficult election. Totally. I mean, it's I mean, I think what we're seeing and it's obvious this is not, uh, you know, a brilliant observation, but 
Trump is backed into all this, like, I, I got to bend all the rules to, to even mm. pretend that I did anything, all right? And he's even the GOP, McConnell and all these guys, I mean, they've been— uh, they, they could say they got all these conservative judges in, but that's like a, you know, that feeds red meat to the base, but that doesn't win you the middle, right? And I do um, I do think when all is said and done, I just looked at the, the latest polling, Biden's up 11%, mm-hmm. 11 percent. In a national I poll? Say. Yeah, 11, 11 points. Okay. And, and he's also up uh, in the battleground states as well, but... You know, and we can't trust polls, right? We um, have, especially national polls, but yes. Right. We, uh, but I do, um, I mean, I what we should be doing right now, I was about to make an optimistic statement. Oh, and I was optimistic about Hillary Clinton, so I, let's just not go there. Don't but, do it. But I am worried. I mean, what, what the next phase, starting next week, will be to dismantle and attack all this messaging, all this emotionality, you know, the question is, um, uh, where do you see vulnerabilities in the story that they're rolling out this week? Mm. Where, what do you think that Trump will go after? I mean, he's—is he going to make any attempt? Can he make any attempt to come to the middle? He never has. He's never tried. Will he try, though, to—what will he sell? What will he, how will he try to dismantle Biden? There's no middle of nothing, right? right? Trump has done nothing. He believes in nothing. So there is no middle of that because it, that doesn't exist. I think that while he, what he will say is we have the best economy in the history of the United States of America. <laughs> uh, stock market is at all time highs. Look what we've done in terms of foreign policy, uh, jobs are coming back better than ever. Our border is strong. Our wall is being built. Uh, we have more testing than anywhere in the world. And that's what he's going to run on. That right. He's going to run on, he's going to run the campaign that he thought he was going to run pre-pandemic, which is on the economy. And, and it's because the economy is the issue that any voter at the end of the day votes on. It's because he did build somewhat of a strong economy off of the Obama-Biden back mm-hmm. uh, in the first few years of his administration that obviously has changed in the wake of the pandemic. I actually don't think that there's going to be a ton of focus on the pandemic because I think they're going to do everything to steer of them course. away from that. I think, I think what we saw with President Trump's uh, uh, RNC in 2016, what we saw in his inaugural address in 2017, and we've seen throughout the last four years, is a dark, scary America, right? The carnage portion of his speech. I think that we're going to see them try to villainize the left, the Biden Mm-hmm. campaign to tie uh, him to the violence the and, and supposed yeah, looting and anti-police remember, and, remember remember the the caravans oh my god remember that time yeah it's hard to I remember think that, but yes i i think that i think that what you're going to see is these scary democrats are going to you know overrun our borders they're going to send our jobs overseas they're going to agree to the green new deal they're going to take away your health care 
Your schools are going to be overrun. Your kids are going to be out of school forever because they don't want anyone to go back to school. The pandemic is going to get out of control. You're going to see a, a very scary right. They have portion to do that. of this country. And, and in some ways, you know, the speakers this week have also painted a little bit of a scary vision of what life will be like when you have uh, another four years of President Trump. But it's not it's not a doom and gloom, crazy, scary portrait of America. It's a, a very realistic portrait that people know because we've been living in it. It's not like a, a, a caravan of immigrant kind of scary with people coming for your jobs in school. It's like there is an unhinged man in the White House kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And those two things are very different. So I think what we're going to see is just a dark, bad relationship version of our country next week. This is Inside the Hive. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question for you. Have you ever been to a convention? I have. In yeah, person? Mm-hmm, sure. Okay. Do you think we are ever going to go back? We talked about this with the folks from the circus last week, and they were very adamant that we may never have a convention. And I actually feel much stronger about that now that we've seen how successful it can be like this. And I think, obviously, things will continue to get more successful as there's more um, more practice with it, and you see what works and what doesn't. I can't think of anyone who misses the old style convention except for political reporters and operatives, right? I don't think the American people are worse off for not having in person. What's your take? Well, you know, as a reporter who loves to, uh, you know, have an expense account at a, at a convention, uh, there's that side, you know, but I think in the future, you know, looking forward to the day that we have, uh, some sort of, um, immunization against this, uh, you know, virus in which we can gather again. Maybe there'll be some hybrid. I mean, there is a sort of, you know, rock concert kind of vibe that you can get. Uh, totally. You know, when you hear a great speech, you know, there's the famous Barack Obama speech um, in 04. And, you know, people, uh, but I think the power of these interstitial productions that we've been talking about, these documentaries, which mm. there used to always be a documentary, the nominating documentary. Yes. That, that was a tradition, right? I'll never forget George Bush's, like, right? His was at the end showed him throwing a baseball. Yeah, and yes. then he comes out, like, and then the stage unfolds, and it's actually like a mound. His They yes. had designed it that way. And I think um, yes. Stuart Stevens, in fact, had something to do with that, who's currently, mm. uh, re- you know, revoked his uh, Republican, um, his uh, participation in the Republican Party. But... Uh, but this has definitely proven, and I think in the age in which, um, you know, people are streaming, at you know, it's the thing, it's it's everything now. I do think that it will be hard to go back to that, and in full. 
but I did miss it at times, I must say. Like when there was like a screen full of people zooming, clapping, I was like, that's pretty good, but Ugh. it would be great if there was a huge roaring stadium, right? I mean, uh, you definitely miss that applause, but I will say that the absence of the applause actually allows you to listen to what people say. I think that true. the words become so much more impactful when you're not broken up by applause every few seconds. You're not looking around the crowd and seeing people. We have such divided attention spans at right. current moment. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. to really have to focus on one thing allows you to actually absorb what that one thing is rather than focusing on the crazy hats and the balloon drop and all of that stuff. When all of it gets stripped away, you really, your focus is aligned. I think the thing, the only thing that I'm missing besides the, the burst of energy, which I don't, I don't totally feel that I need to be excited. I think that the actual speeches and content is exciting enough this go around is you don't get the voices from American people in the same right. way. So mm-hmm. I don't care about political reporters who are there reporting on the atmosphere of the crowd, though as a as a political reporter, I, I love reporting on the atmosphere of a crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I don't miss that. I miss being able to have reporting on what people from around the country are saying about what they're seeing and feeling. And that kind of reaction that we're missing is a little scary to me because mm-hmm. I think so much of, of what was missed in the 2016 election was that we didn't listen to people in the middle of this country and what they were seeing and how they were absorbing That's what right. was happening in politics. Right. And any opportunity where we're, we're giving less attention or we're, we're less able to understand what's happening in those battleground states and the places in the middle of the country where newsrooms are not usually centrally located. That's a little nerve wracking to me. And I think the scary part of this whole campaign, it's such a different campaign and you don't have the, the feedback pools following these candidates around to the diners mm-hmm. and talking That's to right. the, the diner owners. I mean, how many times in the wake of the 2016 election were there unbelievable long form pieces of journalism talking about what we missed mm-hmm. right and and i thought well we're not going to miss it again because we've understood what we got wrong mm-hmm. but no one's going to the middle of the country right now no one is going to those battleground states because that's no right. one's going anywhere we're walking so blind here you know and that's- we are like we have no temperature we have no ability to take our temperature in a time when, when ironically we're, we're taking everybody's temperature anytime we go into <laughs> any any establishment we're not yes. taking any kind of political temperature of the people who are going to decide this election and, and by that the way, is that scary was, to me that was I fault Barack Obama for, you know, being the the head of the Democratic Party for eight years and losing or not connecting or not attending to that voter class while he was in office. And Hillary didn't quite connect, didn't connect. Let's just say it. She didn't connect either to that area. Now, Joe Biden, as a candidate, as a profile of a, you know, Irish Catholic middle of the road Democrat with union bona fides, you know, from Pennsylvania. Yeah, plausibly could connect there. But we don't know if he's connecting. Right. And we can look at the TV ratings. I don't know how they're doing it. You can poll till your eyes are, you know, popping out, but you don't know if it's actually real. Right. That's not it. No. And so that is worrisome to me. And I, you know, I don't have what's the answer to it? I mean, I saw there was a recent article in Harper's Magazine where they sent a reporter out to 
uh, I think, Wisconsin, and he hung out in this little town that was one of the towns that had been an Obama town and went to Trump. Mm. And where were they now? And the takeaway was that they're not as upset about Trump as everybody else is. Mm. And, you know, they're not uh, as animated by the polarized politics as we in the press and we who are, you know, who may be, sure. uh, you know, the people who are producing this show, for instance, might mm. understand. And so are you producing a show that is going to connect to those people? How, how mm. did the producers of this and the emotions that they're conjuring, uh, did they, you know, think about who their audience is and who it is they're trying to connect with? I mean, so that's the thing we don't know. I'm sure that they thought about who their audience is, but how could you know who your audience is when you're not out there talking to people all the time? Mm-hmm. How can you fully understand what people need? Because in polling is so flawed. And so you really need to be having tons and tons and tons and dozens of conversations with different people in different parts of the country. And that's just not possible in this moment. And so I'm just, I, I think until the political class and political reporters understands how to really talk to different kinds of Americans. We're going to keep being surprised on election day. I don't think we're going to have a full picture of where things stand until that changes. And I think that that is so hard during this particular election. I think it's always hard. I think right now it's, it's pretty impossible to do, but in elections going forward, I really feel like that's where, newsrooms and pollsters and operatives should focus their attention is like don't worry about getting the major scoops just get into the places where you're able to talk to voters who are actually going to cast their ballots and don't have things be a surprise on november 3rd just just know what you're talking about understand the fabric of this country and i'm guilty of it i i live between the two coasts i live in new york half the time i live in california half the time and I spend so much time, and in, in a normal world, I spend so much time flying over the rest of the country. I'm constantly on on a plane across the country, and I don't spend enough time in the middle of it. And um, I, I think that every reporter at a national publication is guilty of that exact same thing. And I think going forward... That should just be a major priority for everybody to get things right. And to, you know, if our responsibility as journalists is to inform and delight and to give a picture of what's really going on in this world, then you can't fully live up to that responsibility and service the American people if you're not going to the places that are going to decide this election. Well, that was very eloquently put. And let me mm. just say that I don't have, you know, um, a much deeper penetrating insight into that right now, other than to say I live in upstate New York and I live in a, in a district uh, that is flips back and forth between red and blue. It's like a 5149, you know, 4951 sort of uh, district. And it's had mm. it's had a Republican congressman and now it has a Democratic congressman. Um And it really just depends on the energy, who's got the energy, right? And I don't think there's any doubt right now, though, that the Democrats have intense energy. Mm. And, you know, I do worry about whether the youth vote is going to come through. They don't ordinarily come through 
and they haven't in recent times. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, concern that um, the progressive left has sort of skunked Joe Biden's profile for young voters. I hope not. Uh, I think one of the things we're seeing this week in this convention is the Democratic Party reaching out to that youth market, you know, to that youth vote and thinking, I know, here's uh, Billie Eilish, here's, uh, you know, a uh, rapper from the Bronx. And, you know, there's it's multicultural, it's multiracial. And when I was seeing some of that, you were, I was really realizing I put my mind into the try to put my mind into the, you know, person on the couch who might be kind of on the fence about mm. this. Maybe they voted for Trump and they're kind of sick of him, but maybe they'll vote for him again. And are they, uh, can they connect to this, right? And are they, are they, how do they react to the multiracial, you know, um, just the bigger tent, right? Mm. And it really is about this much wider tent versus this extremely narrow tent, right? Mm. And so we don't know, uh, and, and then it, of course it's just about what were there seventy thousand votes that determined the election in two thousand sixteen? Yeah. That could be anywhere in America. I mean, we, we're going to find out afterwards that it all boiled down to some other place or some other group, right? And the political wisdom will be rewritten once again, and we don't know what that is. Sure. This is inside the hive. You brought up Billie Eilish, and yes. I, I realized that all week I've been meeting to ask you, and I'm going to ask you here, what have you thought about the music of the convention? It's been, it's definitely a choice, and I'm so curious as um, tuned into this world as you are, Springsteen, as, as you are on the topic. Right. Bruce Springsteen is a kind of like, um, he's the Joe Biden of musical choices, right? Totally. <laughs> so he's... He's, you know, but there's, but, you know, it's a powerful note to strike, right? And he's got incredible integrity and with people, right? He's a credible messenger of some version of the working class, right? Yes. At least in Jersey, right? Even, even Chris Christie likes him. So it's, um, you know, Billie Loves. Eilish, um, it's hard for, I got to say, you know, having, uh, daughters, one is a teenager, um, and watch following their musical tastes, which change really very quickly and so very fast. frequently. I mean, Billie mm -hmm. Eilish is already kind of in the rearview mirror for them, shockingly. Oh, um, interesting. So, you know, they're already like, yeah, you know, we're kind of, she's played out for us or we've moved on, you know. Mm. But, you know, so, but it did seem um, in some ways, on the one hand, for older people, it might seem have seemed risky to put Billie Eilish on TV as you know, representing the totally. party. Um, on the other hand, for kids, it's like, oh, this is just our world. Right, she's just a character. Yeah, but what, in our have, world. what have you what have you thought of the of the songs after the major speeches? Remind me what some of those are. Uh, what was well? I don't know if this is during the campaign or if this is now during the VP selection. But I feel like they had uh, move on up was one of the uh, okay. Songs. Well, that 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 for me, I'm the target audience. Okay, I love Curtis Mayfield. That that <laughs> sure. When, and, and when they played it, I have to say I was so. It just immediately exploded me emotionally because I was like, mm. that is exactly what I connect to in terms of wanting to be uplifted, right? Curtis Mayfield. Yeah. And 
I loved it. You know, it was like from the 70s. It was definitely could have been in the Joe and Jill Biden sitcom that I'm mentioning from the totally. 70s. They could have played that like as the outro music for the sitcom. Totally. And yep. I would have just been, yes, that's I want to let's watch it next week when it comes on NBC or whatever. So, yes, I, it's I, it's it's music to me. The music that they've played this entire time has been music that's nostalgic from a time of social change. That's right. And so that is like a, an mm-hmm. exact note. I think that the music is perfect for the note that they're trying to strike. It's like we're in the middle of a real social upheaval the way that we were in the 60s and 70s. And we're going to play music that both is feel good but also is so evocative of that particular cultural moment. I thought it was really actually quite inspired that they're going in that direction. And also it's just music that makes me feel like I want to go to a wedding and dance. Yeah. And like I want to go to a party and dance with my friends. Cool in the and game. So like, they had cool in exactly, the game. Exactly. Just mm-hmm. invite like – Vote for these people if you want to go to a wedding and dance with your friends. Like, that's well, what that, it felt like to me. That's a very good observation because it did feel like that. It felt like a family affair, a family wedding, yes. right? Um, and then I was thinking about Mrs. America, the show about, mm, yes. you know, the women's— You love um, that show. Well, I've—yeah, and I will—I love— what I learned from it, too. I, I was educated by it, and I, there was some conflict. You know, Gloria Steinem kind of came out against the show, in fact, saying that she, was, she didn't like exactly how they played history. I think they think that they played up the conservative side too much. Mm. But, uh, you know, last night when I was watching the sort of documentary portion about, you know, the progress of women, um, and they showed Shirley, Shirley Chisholm, you know, who— speaking and it's like why shouldn't yeah. i run for president oh well come on i mean that's the emotional note that you want to feel and that's what curtis mayfield made you feel it's exactly what you said it's the it's kind of a touching back to this moment of social upheaval and let me point out something really interesting from my interview with kurt anderson a couple of weeks mm. ago and from reading his book um he points out that 1976 was the greatest year of, in terms of America, the American distribution of wealth in this country. That was the most e- equal that the country had ever been in terms of mm. the wealthy, the working class, and the poor, in terms of redis- the distribution of wealth in this country. And so, you know, that's exactly where this music and this culture is all coming from. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you know, you had me at Curtis Mayfield. I'm easy. You know, I'm like Generation <laughs> X. I was a kid in that time. I remember this music. I watched these sitcoms I'm referencing. I and mean, when I say eight is enough, anybody under, you know, 30 is going to be like, what are you talking about? But like, uh, you know, these, this vision is definitely one that not only in this cultural touchstones we're talking about, but actually literally. Mm. It was a time when the taxes were higher on the rich and there was a bigger social net People were, it was, you know, coming out of the Nixon era and there was, mm. you know, energy on the Democratic side. Um, and of course, there was conflict within the party, and just as there is now, too. There was a progressive left and a center left, but that's always the case. But, um, you know, let me just say it's, let's wind down. But I want to wind down by saying, I don't know if I'll regret saying this later, but I'm optimistic. Why? I'm nervous to hear. Probably because there are no reliable facts to base it on, and all you really have is hope. Mm. 
That's all we've got. You know, you have to just, we, the people, have to supply the energy. And they Mm. will supply the energy on November 3rd. We don't know what level of energy they'll supply. We hope that certain kinds of energy will come out and translate into votes at the polls and in the right places, in the right numbers. But as long as all we have is energy, it's up to us to, you know, feel it, telegraph it, and not be afraid of it, you know? Mm. I don't want to be the guy who's, like, uh, recoiling in anxiety every single day between now and November 3rd. I mean, I'm going to here and there. But I was I just wa- going to say, have you been watching me in my house all day? <laughs> well, but... Is like, okay, well, that's good. Why don't you let's do this? Okay, I want you, I don't want you to feel bad, but I want you to be um, realistic and uh, you know, tempered and bring the sobriety that is required. But I'm going to bring uh, some optimism. I think between the two of us, we can find reality. Yeah, between my anxiety and your hope, we'll find some sort of balance. I'm actually, I'm not going to chime in with some, some of my inner cynicism right now because I really it's early here in Los Angeles still (laughs) I want to ride your hope let's ride it all day I want to keep that energy that vibe going here for my day for the rest of my week because we are headed into a very doom and gloom week next week with the RNC and we will be back gird yourself all of that down I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this hope alive as long as I can you guys should take that with you too as Uh, as a solve for what we're all about to experience next week. Thank you, Joe. I'm so glad that we got to talk through this and just buckle up for next week. Buckle up, keep hope alive, move on up. And Emily Jane Fox, thank you and goodbye. That's our show this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, the lovely Emily Jane Fox. I'd like to thank our producers at Cadence 13, especially executive producer Bob Tabador. If you want to hear more episodes of Inside the Hive, you can subscribe to this podcast at Apple or Radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review while you're there. I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we will see you next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.